Hi, everyone. I am just waiting for Michael. Uh, this is not like him. Uh, you know, he's usually here on time. I don't know. He didn't text me. He didn't DM me or anything. Uh, so he'll show up when he shows up. I hope, I hope NATO, uh, didn't get to him. Anybody, uh, anybody want to chat? Okay. We will just sit here and we will wait. Hey, Michael. Hey, everybody. Sorry about that. Uh, I was just telling them I, I didn't know where you were. I was hoping NATO didn't get to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure everyone was in uh, suspense for that six minutes. Six minutes that will live uh, in infamy. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing when you release this podcast. Uh, you know, they cut off uh, the start when it, there's no sound. So, you know, we won't have that. We won't have that six six minutes of silence. Yeah, I was actually just quickly uh, reading that... Uh, the article you sent me on the <laughs> the uh, immigrants being sent by uh, Governor Abbott in Texas and Governor uh, DeSantis in Florida to uh, let's say affluent liberal enclaves where immigrants don't or migrants don't tend to uh, show up. Yeah. So one is uh, one is uh, uh, DeSantis sent them to Martha's Vineyard. That's the funniest then- one. Yeah. And then the uh, and then uh, yeah, Abbott uh, Kamala Harris's house, I think, like one of her houses. Yeah, the, like the Naval Observatory in DC, like the official vice president's ref, uh, residences. That, that's been going on for a few weeks, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, it's a, it's just a silly story. Well, I mean, there's actually, I don't know, there's a somewhat significant underlying principle, I think, and yeah, clearly it's a political stunt to one degree or another, because these are two high-profile Republican governors who are going to go out of their way to make sort of outlandish or brash gestures in opposition to the incumbent Democratic administration. But on another level, I have, I have always thought, and I've even made this point in different contexts, like last year during the Afghanistan withdrawal, when you know, there was this huge push to admit Afghan refugees to the U.S., I made a flippant point that, you know, was kind of funny, but, you know, had some, a serious sort of undercurrent to it, which is that, you know, all the Afghan immigrants being brought in should be sent exclusively either to Martha's Vineyard, the Hamptons, or Georgetown. Yeah. And then we'll see how the people who tend to be the most strident in their support for those kinds of initiatives handle it in practice because you know it is true much of the time that those who have liberal views on immigration don't tend to directly encounter the fruits of the policies that they support in their own geographic proximity but many many do i mean a lot of people yeah, who don't do, like immigration yeah. also don't have any uh, contact with them either. I do think. I think in general, That's immigrants true. do settle in blue areas, right? They do settle in places that generally uh, they do, they yeah. do. But it won't. It won't be these. It won't be these very high class, affluent, liberal enclaves well, that are like quintessential, are, yeah. like Martha's Vineyard, right? Well, I the mean, migrants are a, free to go to Martha's Vineyard. They just I mean, they can't afford it, like right. a lot of Americans can't, right? True. I mean, then they can't go to the Hamptons either. Or they can't get a 
townhouse in Georgetown. Yeah. But it's just, I guess the, the point being, I mean, there is something a bit satisfying about the, uh, you know, the, the pl- placidity of those liberal enclaves occasionally getting a minor interruption as you know, a direct result of the policies that they support. But anyway, I think, yeah, largely it does seem to be a stunt, but it was sort of yeah. amusing. Yeah, um, it is amusing. It is amusing. It is amusing. That's that's. I don't have strong feelings about it, except it's amusing. That's yeah. Yeah, that's that's my only point of sending you that story. Yeah. So people <laughs> might be, might be uh, curious about your Twitter situation. Um, I'm my. I was mildly curious because I don't know for better or worse. I do uh, spend a lot of time on Twitter. Maybe that more than would be uh, optimally productive for me but you know what can i say it's like embedded into my neurons at this point um so you were it's funny because i guess you, by coincidence you and i both appeared to be off twitter simultaneously because every now and then <laughs> and everyone thought it was because ukraine kicked us yeah off. <laughs> yeah everyone thought that uh, or like we were in hiding because we were so so ashamed that we were somehow proven wrong about where were i don't you, know where what were you, exactly. by the way i was suspended where were, what happened to you well, you know, I wasn't anywhere. Every like a couple you times a year, that? twice, two or three times a year, I I I log off Twitter for a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing really out of the ordinary. <laughs> but it's funny, like I get these, you know, apocalyptic messages asking if I'm okay, even for people who are actually <laughs> sincere. They don't see us on who the actually want to do like a welfare check on me. I, I get that. <laughs> they think we're dead if we we're not on Twitter. No, yeah, days. I mean my. One way that my like my, my parents monitor if I'm alive is to scan. I look at my Twitter. I, mean, I, I wish they wouldn't, but they do. They won't listen to well, my. something funny. I, 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 I blocked my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even know what they. I don't even know that my parents have accounts. I think they uh, might just you know open up the the page. You know. Yeah, mine my mine might do that. I can't I can't stop them from doing that. Yeah. I, I, it might feel a little wrong to overtly <laughs> block my mom. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have but to. <laughs> but that, that's also funny. Yeah did she did she uh, did she object when you did that? Oh yeah, she was mad at me for a very long time. <laughs> really? Yeah, not a not, long not time, tongue in cheek. No, uh, no, she was mad. really mad. She was really mad. But I was like, well, <laughs> you know, it's like I don't know. My mom watching me. It's like too weird. I know I'm a public figure, but I just, you know, I just don't want my mom watching me, I guess. Yeah. I don't either, but I resigned myself a long time ago to not being able to control it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But, I mean, you know, so, whatever. So, so, apparently, like, you and I were so ashamed of ourselves because <laughs> of the success of the Ukraine counteroffensive in Kharkiv that we both slunk away in tandem <laughs> and couldn't show our faces on Twitter because we were just so humiliated. Now, it was, it's never really been explained to me how a tactical advance by Ukraine is like massively contradictory to anything that I've ever said. Or mm-hmm. like, in other words, how I'm somehow proven wrong by there being a successful Ukraine. Well, I said- my, never point, my, my point has never been that Ukraine lacks the ability to ever have a successful counteroffensive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I that was say, never, the, did, never the yeah. point. I did say that before the war. I said that Ukraine would probably would never take 
you know, I thought Russians would be competent, so I thought, you know, they had the overwhelming advantage. So I did say explicitly, Russia will never give you uh, ter- territory back to Ukraine. So they had me. I mean, they had me. But, like, it's funny. Okay, because, well, I, like, never, I, I never did. I just want to yeah. make that clear. Anyone listening, <laughs> put that on the record. Richard said something that got proven wrong, I guess, and, yeah. but I did not. Well, it, it, it's well, it pops up every few months. It's like I had like a yeah, substack about like uh, you know what I got wrong about Ukraine. And it's just like they discovered like a new like every few months. And like if I was like uh, you know a, a normal person would have just deleted those tweets, but I'm just you know I, I, on principle I refuse to ever do that. So they just come. Yeah, like, I don't do that either. I mean, I wouldn't delete yeah. a tweet purely because it's wrong. No, it that's shows wrong. that I've been yeah. proven wrong about something. Yeah, that's the worst reason. That that's would actually be, I think, unethical. Yeah, right. Um, but I mean, it is, uh, it, you know, but they, they do like just they do discover it like over and over again. And they, you know, think it's something new. And uh, but yeah, I was I mean, I was off Twitter. And honestly, it's 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 better to be off Twitter. I mean, you so you take a few you take a few days off. Like, I don't think I got a, I had gone a day without checking Twitter in years. Um, I, yeah. And you started on it fairly late, right? I mean, you I think you your account started what 2018 right so Something by 2018 like that, yeah but then i didn't even start tweeting seriously until 2019 or 20 um i i, I was tweeting rarely uh for like yeah, so you're still kind of like a newbie because by 2018 i mean i had been on it you know for pretty much a decade uh so i couldn't, I couldn't yeah. imagine yeah, i couldn't imagine my brain after it i mean i, I embraced it with gusto obviously obviously but yeah it's 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 um Look, there's an opportunity cost, and what I'm doing without Twitter, it's like, you know, I read the news now, and, like, I read more news than I did before, but, like, there's a finite amount of it, right? Like, I read all the papers and websites I normally read. Um, and then... So just to, but just, to, just to clarify, you got banned for a week because whatever bots they have scanning Twitter... Inter- I mean, this is one of the most ridiculous examples I've ever seen of this happening. <laughs> I mean, it happens pretty frequently that... A joke, like a, like a, the most uh, a uh, impossibly obvious joke that someone says, gets I guess classified by the Twitter algorithmic moderation system as a threat of physical violence, and then the person gets banned, or uh, at least you know temporarily banned. And I, I guess that's what they're claiming you did because like you <clears throat> suggested you didn't even like say that you're gonna. Th- it was like. <laughs> You playfully said you were going to throw someone off a cliff. I mean, it was like, but it was almost—it was like a figure of speech. Yeah, Americans. We'll throw an American off the cliff in your honor. I like this guy was saying, "I'm going to take jobs as an immigrant." It's like saying you're going to throw someone under the bus. Uh, no, it was like it was a literal, but a joke. Like we'll throw right. off an American off a cliff in your honor. Like, but also obviously a joke. But it's, and... it's, it's not that far away from saying that someone could get thrown under the bus. Uh, in terms of it well, being a figurative. Look, I mean, either way. Expression of something either that either is, like, ethnically, like, violent, but it's, like, it's obviously not. Yeah, figurative or literal. It's obviously a joke. Any human being looks at it. Now, I don't care if the algorithm doesn't understand that, but, like, I had an appeal, and they go after careful, like, consideration, like, yeah, screw this. Like, either they, they want to keep me off or a leak. You know, I'm not a, I'm, I'm an adult. Like, I, I don't feel like, you know, being on a... Put time out. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like going into detention for like saying the wrong thing. I mean, it's just something I, I really don't want to deal with anymore. So I said, you know, screw it. There's, uh, you know, it's like there, there's that reason, but there's also I think other good reasons to be off Twitter. So pretty much. Were you put in detention in school? Like I, 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 I can see you being a regular. <laughs> I was a regular. in detention, or see you not. I think I could see two plausible scenarios. No, no, I was a bad kid. I was a bad kid. I was really. I, I had yeah, I had ten days suspension. We had ten day suspensions. That was the maximum we would get. You got suspended for ten day, for ten days from school. 
Yeah, yeah. No, really? Yeah, like we're pretty regular. Like how old were you? Uh, high school. But for what? <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, just like smoking uh, in the bathroom. Like, I don't know, not doing anything, <laughs> not going to class. I was, I, you know, eventually smoking in the bathroom. Smoking in the bathroom, that's like the quintessential, uh, you know, bad boy. No, but I was a loser. I was just, I was, I don't, don't think I was cool. Were you wearing a leather jacket? I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not 60 years old. My leather jackets weren't cool when I was a kid. <laughs> like the Fonz. <laughs> yeah. no, it's a little before my time. But, uh, yeah, I, um, uh, well, but they stopped giving me 10 day suspensions because I, like, I was trying to get them on purpose because I didn't want to go to school. Uh, so like the, and so like they started giving me internal suspensions, like, I, like by the rule book, like I memorized the rule book and tried to maximize my time, like being suspended from school and then they eventually like just bent the rules to keep me there. Uh, but you must've done well academically, even if you were being, no, I, I dropped out, disciplined, I dropped right? out, like I dropped out like junior year of high school. Really? Uh, so yeah. It was, Wait, so uh, how'd you get into all these prestigious universities for undergraduate and, uh, Graduate. Uh, well, I didn't get a prestigious undergraduate, but I, I, I went. I got my GED, and then I went to community college, and then I went to uh, like a state school undergrad at Colorado, and then uh, yeah, I went to grad schools. Oh, okay. They don't look at your high, you know, they don't look at your high school. Yeah. Grades and apply for grad school. Oh, I guess I thought that you had been to like that. Your undergrad was uh, some. No, was now University of Colorado, which is just like you know a state school that I think pretty much takes, you know, not everybody. But like, at Boulder. Yeah, Boulder. Yeah, my brother went there actually. I don't know why. He was from New Jersey, but um, yeah, I don't know uh, why I went there either. What years? Oh, he's younger than me. So, I mean, what years would he have gone? Uh, I don't know, two thousand ten to fourteen or something like that. Uh, oh, I graduated. Oh, we were almost we almost uh, overlapped. I graduated, I think, two thousand nine. You graduated undergrad in two thousand nine. Yeah. Oh, okay. What do you I don't know why I'm so I'm not, I don't know why I'm so uh, confused about your uh, personal history, but what did you think I was older the, or younger than that? I don't know what I thought. I'm just a mess. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, not that your individual Twitter situation is that important to anyone, but oh, it's important to my fans. It's important to some of the people here. I think. Yeah, it's important to people, but it's not like the most important thing that we could possibly discuss. Um, so, but even if, even if your individual situation on Twitter was not important, I think it actually could be brought like your uh, the issue at, at hand could be broadened out into something that has some more potential importance. Because you know, one thing that I tend to notice that I find weird, and I almost see now as this pathology amongst the media class in particular, but also the sort of like media adjacent sectors of society and like the you know, produce content, quote unquote, and therefore probably spend an inordinate amount of time on Twitter. Uh, one thing that I've noticed over the years, and this isn't really even a recent phenomenon so much. I mean, I can recall it almost from the earliest days that I was on Twitter. There's like this assumption that it's sort of lame to admit that you like Twitter or you get value from it, even yeah. if by your own actions, you're demonstrating that you clearly do because you spend tons of time on it and you might even, you know, acknowledge that you've gotten opportunities through Twitter, you know, professionally, socially, whatever, or it's like enhanced your 
life outcomes in some respect. Like there's always this nagging need that you find, or at least uh, that I observe, particularly among people in the media who say that like, need to say that like, Twitter is this hell site yeah. that yeah. you know they hate, um, but you know they're sort of there, obliged somehow to be on it. Yeah. There is a guilt. I mean, there is a guilt thing that I, I felt too. Okay, like you take a knife. Sometimes you get too deep into Twitter. And let's say you have a knife where like, you know, you spend an hour or two hours on Twitter. Like compare that to how you feel if you spend it with friends or if like you read a, read a good book. I mean, I think it's people like do this. It's like they, you know, they, they'll pig out on some, you know, ice cream or eat some junk food and, you know, sit, sit in their pajamas and watch some show, and they'll feel bad about it, right? People will, like... I mean, that's normal. People will do stuff that they do get value of, that they do like, but at the same time, it's not, you know, it's not the proudest thing in the world for them. Right, but, I mean, it's not necessarily the case that spending an hour or two on Twitter confers less value than spending an hour or two reading a book or hang, hanging out with friends. I mean, it may be the case. Maybe the case of hanging out with friends or reading a book is a better use of your time, but well, it may it, not be. I mean, I maybe, 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 yeah. maybe you're actually, you know, garnering useful information on Twitter during that period that you wouldn't otherwise be able to access. Maybe you're forging some kind of new social bond that could bear fruit down the line. You know, maybe you're even just bolstering your online following in a way that is going to expand your influence and um, increase your ability to, you know, uh, persuade or convince people of what things that you believe to be true. So, I mean, that's, I guess I don't really buy this sort of inherent presumption that being on Twitter has to be this frivolous thing. It, I mean, it can be. People could misuse it. People could use it in dumb ways. But it's not. But then that's what's dumb is their use. It's not the medium. No, that's, that's true. But the people do get sucked into that, right? Like, there's obviously information on Twitter and there's good discussions and all that. But a lot of it is really petty gossip. Like, and you know what goes viral. Like, you know, like, when you go, when you, like, I've had good points go viral. But the stuff that's gotten, like, the most attention that I've done have been either people dunking on me or me, like, trolling something stupid. And, like, you know, people are just, you know, they're doing these, you know, it's fine. I, I enjoy my trolling um, to a certain extent. But, like, if it becomes, like, a huge por- portion of your life, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that people aren't proud of that, that, like, you know, just gossipy, you know, sniping, dunking on each other. Um right. And so it makes sense that, like, you know, I do think, you know, like, yeah, you know, it's, it, nobody should deny that, like, you do get a lot of information. Now, do you get a, more information? Let's say, like, I mean, I made this comparison to my subset, like spending half hour on Twitter versus half hour, you know, reading serious news articles on something. I think, you know, the half hour reading serious news articles on something is superior because you get the, you get the news, but you don't, you don't also get the distractions and the dunking. And, like, you know, it's there. It's like, even if you're not looking for it, you get sucked into it. I don't know. I mean, but I could, uh, because I'm self curating Twitter, there are times where I feel like I'm getting a better bang from my buck by using Twitter to get information than reading an article. Now, obviously, I also read articles, but if I'm reading a New York Times article, it might be well done, it might be informative, it might have new information, but I'm not going to be able to, like, pivot back and forth between a guy at the Rand Corporation and a, you know, 
journalist on the ground in Ukraine and some think tank person and some activist who has a point that, you know, maybe has some value or maybe doesn't, but wouldn't be reflected in the New York Times. Um, so it, it's almost like more active engagement mentally to be getting information through the self-curated process than it is just sort of like relatively more passively consume whatever happens to be on the New York Times homepage. Now, again, I do that as well. I mean, I subscribe to – I pay for more publications now than I thought I ever would. Um, and, you know, I, I, re, I read them consistently. But I don't know. I just think it's so, it's so dependent on how one manages one's own user experience that this kind of – reflexive assumption that it has to be more frivolous than other forms of consumption. It just, it just rubs me the wrong way, especially when these Twitter media people, I'm not saying that you've done this because yeah, of course like you have a, so you have an interesting take on it. That's like reasons differently than how others have put this take in the past, at least how I've seen, but especially when like uh, media figures who clearly have a platform Maybe not exclusively, maybe not even in large part, but at least in some part, sometimes in large part, because of their Twitter presence over the years, when they feel like there's this obligatory um, ritual they have to do to kind of like self-flagellate and talk about how much they hate Twitter, which clearly they don't. I mean, there's something there's something that seems like, I don't know, um, vaguely uh, dishonest about it to but me. I, I just I, tend I, not to I, like. I haven't seen, I mean, I, I've seen people say health site, but like, I don't think, I don't think I've seen a lot of this. I mean, who, who are you thinking of? Are you thinking of specific cases you've seen this lately? Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I really want to name names. I mean, there's this person, one that does come to mind that I know is, I have seen Dunt do this before is this uh, person, Ashley Feinberg, who, you know, I don't know. I'm not even really want to. I don't want to render judgment on her, but she, you know, she doesn't. She's uh, expressed her lack of admiration for me in the past, which is fine. Not even really the point. The point is, you know, she became this sort of viral journalist for a while because I think you know, she was at Gawker and she was doing stuff like where she like somehow analyzed Trump's hair and you know she 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 figured out that Mitt Romney had a. Uh, a dummy account on Twitter and, you know, she did like sleuthing stuff like this, but the reason why she got notoriety for it wasn't because it's like so inherently groundbreaking to figure out that Mitt Romney had a Pierre Delecto handle. Yeah. It was because, you know, Twitter algorithmically boosted her <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I know I've seen, and I can't quote you verbatim, but I know I've seen her do this dumb little routine where she has to make it seem like she somehow loathes twitter i i don't i don't get it i mean if you and if you do loathe if you if you do loathe it and you're yet you're on it 24 7 i don't know i think the problem more lies with you yeah i think that's right why would I mean, you do I, something why would you do something that you loathe i mean so I'm, I'm you know i'm more i'm more um you know understanding i think you can have a love hate relationship with something it seems like you just you just love twitter you don't have well, it's not even that I love Twitter. I mean, it's just that I don't know. I uh, I'm anti anti Twitter. I guess. Yeah. Well, I don't. And like also, that. I have I do admit that. So for me, maybe I'm a bit of an unusual case because you know Twitter started in '09, right? That's when I start made my account, and then then I went into media 
so to say. Uh, or, or in other words, my joining Twitter coincided with my joining the media industry to some extent, right? So it's always, they've always gone hand in hand. And I know that I've gotten opportunities and made connections by way of Twitter. So am I going to then put on this pose where I have to pretend like I've not derived anything of value from Twitter? I mean, clearly I have. I mean, I'm in a position now where, you know, people just pay me to write stuff or, you know, people will, I mean, even for the longest time before Substack, people just paid me for like really doing nothing at all. They just thought that it was worth paying me so I could do my thing without really any assurances that it was going to result in anything tangible. And there's no way that would have been possible. And so it's like a pretty, you know, uh, quote unquote privileged life, I would think. Yeah. I have to do stuff I'm interested in and people pay me for it. Yeah. And I just know that a lot of that was made possible by Twitter. So it would just seem like, I don't know, it would seem yeah. disingenuous for me to adopt this like scornful attitude toward Twitter as though I had been wronged by it. Uh, well, I mean, look, people, I mean, people, I think have, I, I give people the right to their, you know, own sort of love hate relationship for me. I mean, I think it's, it made me, you know, it made me get a lot of attention. It, it helped me a lot. Also, I think I, I, I shot myself in a, the foot a little bit. So I think my, well, for sure, so, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know you probably. If yeah, no, Twitter. that's true. And, and it's, it's unquestionably a net benefit for me. I mean, it's been a net benefit for me. It doesn't mean it's a net benefit now. I think when, I think when you're starting out versus when you're established, like you know, I'm you know I'm going to grow based I think on my articles and books and stuff from here on out, um, and then I can promote that stuff on Twitter. But you know, getting my name out there, just you know, being a person people know, um, I had to uh, yeah, I had to start start from somewhere. Uh, so it's fine to say for me, like to say Twitter has been so important in my life, and now I sort of don't want anything to do with it or want very little to do with it. Well, you know that's fine, and maybe one day I'll I'll, I'll be back obsessively on it again. Um, and it's fine for Ashley Feinberg to like you know uh, you know benefit from Twitter, and then say at this point in my life I hate it. That it yeah, it's fine for her to do it, but I reserve the right to be annoyed by it. <laughs> you can be annoyed, but I you know I I, I think you're annoyed by the. Um, it's just like a cool thing to say, like you know, this, I just it's people who like to complain like to complain on Twitter, right? I think it's a lot of neurotic people are on Twitter, and these are the kinds of, you know, neurotic people. Their whole politics is, you know, this person said this thing, this person said that thing. Uh, you know, they're canceling people. It's and, and I think this is, like, the same kind of person who's just, like, a very uh, unhappy kind of person, and they're often on Twitter, and they're unhappy about Twitter. But I think it's just a sign of their general unhappiness. I, you know, I don't think it's something special about their relationship uh, with Twitter. But, you know, out of all these things these people do, you know, this bothers me probably the least. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't really justify in the merits why it bothers me in this outsized way, but I guess it does. <laughs> it's well, one of these, yeah, uh, think, yeah. like, less than, less than rational. Uh, I mean, you had that piece a couple months ago about why it is that you prioritize certain issues in terms of, like, the import you assign to it that clearly, on objective terms, are not as important as other issues, right? So, um, I guess this is in that bucket for me. <laughs> yeah, anti-anti, anti-anti-Twitter. I mean, that, that's a product of being on Twitter. Right? <laughs> that's like something. It's like it's like a it's like a opinion about an opinion about Twitter is like driving you crazy. It's a sign. <laughs> Twitter's playing yeah. a big role in your life. Yeah, although I do have to admit that the 
experience of Twitter over the past like two months has been, I would say, markedly less pleasant. Not that it's ever particularly pleasant, or maybe pleasant is the right word, isn't the right word to describe my experience on Twitter, but it's um, become noticeably more unpleasant because of these, because uh, of the Ukraine, pro Ukraine trolling offensive that was launched in July. Yeah, where did this come from, this NAFO um, thing? Where did this come from? Like, what was it like an official, like, government thing? Well, like, well, what was it? came out of nowhere? Um, I don't know. You know, I think, and, like, um, active and crazy. Yeah, and it's like, you know, it's funny because Twitter used to say that the worst injustice that could be inflicted on anyone was, quote, targeted harassment. Yeah. Meaning, hara- you know, uh, going after someone on Twitter in a, non- in a non-organic way where, like, you know, people will use a- external... Uh, organizing mechanisms to rally people to go onto Twitter and, you know, attack someone or whatever. Um, you know, and of course, you know, my problem with targeted harassment being elevated as like the grand moral, uh, you know, uh, dilemma of our times was that, of course, it would never actually, you know, prohibitions on targeted harassment would, of course, never under any circumstances be enforced neutrally. Um, because it's sort of like an inherently vague concept. Um, but also, you know, clearly the only reason target harassment became a thing that Twitter eventually had to address. I want to I say they were made to address it starting in like 2016, 17. Um, it was because, you know, liberals were uh, bleeding that these pro-Trump Nazi white nationalist trolls or whatever were uh, attacking them, and their danger was their safety rather was in danger, and uh, Twitter had to act. And of course, that's the kind of targeted harassment that would impel Twitter to take action. It has to have a certain ideological flavor. Um, whereas you know, targeted harassment, if you want to put it that way, I'm not claiming I'm a victim of targeted harassment. Okay, but what is clearly happening now is like inorganic quote-unquote targeted harassment. It's just being done by a group that so what, seems to be, the, um, what, you know, in good, so good favor. definition of targeted harassment? You have, it's you go outside of Twitter to draw people to somebody? I, I think it's like, it, it's uh, inauthentic targeting of a Twitter yeah. user, right? So, so it's not just like, so that's not, not just like a tweet goes viral and a bunch of people see it and get mad and criticize you, right? It's like a... Uh, an, an expressly organized campaign that also ex- exists outside of Twitter to target. Can it be on Twitter? Can I, can I be like, everyone go get Michael Tracy? Uh, would that be targeted harassment? If I'm saying it on Twitter or do I have to like call them? And say, <laughs> yeah, go, I'm not a 100% sure. I think, I don't know if it's been spelled out that explicitly. Um, I have to double check. I mean, I haven't looked at the definition in like their terms of service recently, but uh, I guess it could happen within Twitter. Like, you know, people have, uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, people will have like group DMs or something where they'll put a, put tweets in and then just kind of rally a kind of a tsunami of uh, scorn to be heaped on whoever is in the crosshairs. Um, and, you know, the reason why I'm not going to bang on about it, me needing Twitter's help to protect my safety is because in addition to recognizing that, of course, targeted harassment was never going to be enforced neutrally, also, the significance of target harassment itself was being vastly overstated to the point where it was like, again, you know, the 21st century's great moral failing for Twitter not to intervene and make sure that 
you know, uh, that lady from Ghost, the, the woman Ghostbusters movie wasn't getting, you know, criticized by people on online. Um, here's interesting. Just I'm looking at the rules. So, if you say they have an example, I wish all rapists to die. Child abusers should be hanged. That they will ask you to delete, but they will not give you any penalty because you are wishing harm on bad people. <laughs> this is interesting. I never read this. Uh, but like, I hope like I hope you get cancer and die. That is wow. So these are these are. Uh, yeah, they have all these elaborate, elaborate so much. definitions and stuff. Yeah, they. I mean. What happened post two thousand sixteen is because, um, you know, Twitter was one of the Twitter and Facebook, I guess, and t- together were one of the scapegoats blamed for why the election turned out in a way that you know traumatized the liberal establishment. So you know they ha- they hauled Zuckerberg and Dorsey, and I think the Google guy uh, as well. Yeah, before. House committee hearings and Senate hearings, you know, over and over, basically demanding that they accept responsibility for, you know, uh, countenancing all kinds of platform manipulation that set the stage for Trump to win the election, right? So they, under government pressure and also, you know, media pressure, obviously. Uh, that's when Twitter, in particular, anyway, really started to ramp up this new kind of sprawling bureaucratic protocol around content moderation. So even though they have a lot of, and I just pulled it up myself, even though there's a lot of words here purporting to define what targeted harassment is, I mean, it's still not going to be possible to like decipher any kind of coherent definition of what targeted harassment actually is. Yeah. Um, I had thought, I mean, I have to reread this now. I'm not going to reread it live on call. But I had thought that one of like the prerequisites for when something would become target harassment was that it had to be to some degree inauthentic. But maybe that's not, that, maybe that's not a it's, prerequisite anymore. Insulting people to harass them is, is a, uh, is so that, I mean, like people, if someone responds like, oh, fuck you. Uh, that's apparently a violation of Twitter rules, but I've never seen any, like, people say that to me all the time. I've never seen anybody. Maybe they do, but I, I mean, it's, I see that stuff up all the time. Yeah, so I think you're saying it, it, this is select, this is select. This is so funny. Yeah, I, ha- I hadn't seen this actually recently, or, or if I did, I forgot it. Here's one of the criteria set out for targeted harassment, or I guess they call it abusive behavior. Using here's what Twitter says: using insults, profanity, or slurs with the purpose of harassing or intimidating others. We take action against the use of insults, profanity, or slurs to target others. Uh-huh. Yeah. In some cases, such as not but not limited to severe repetitive usage of insults or slurs, where the primary intent is to harass or intimidate others, we may require tweet removal. There, okay, there, so there's I mean, another, that's there's like another that's part. That, no, that's there's just another, exp- there's yeah. another part about targeted specifically targeted harassment that I just saw. So that's not the target. There's another targeted harassment part. Okay, what's that? Uh, let me see. Uh, it's uh, sexual advances, intimidating others. Uh, it's the next, the very next one down. Encouraging or calling for others to harass an individual or group of people. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just so funny. And I'm, of course, I'm not going to try like martyr myself. Have you ever been? But that's that, that's expl- No, I haven't. But that's explicitly what these NATO. NAFO, whatever pro-Ukraine trolls have been doing for me. I mean, they they will they'll 
overtly call for me to just be barraged with insults. Um, which, you know, again, I'm not going to claim that, um, you know, the, the, I know I should be playing the world's via, smallest violin when I even mention this. So it's not about a victimhood claim. It's more about a just comical in, uh, inconsistency of application of these rules claim. Because uh, there's, it's never even, it wouldn't even occur to anyone <laughs> so the, the, the that this, NAFO, this NAFO stuff could violate any rule. NAFO, NAFO, the Wikipedia page is interesting. Uh, fellas is a gender neutral term. Current and retired service members from Ukraine and NATO militaries, as well as Eastern Europeans and Eastern European diaspora, are heavily represented among its legions. The German yeah. German paper Berlin Courier estimates the group includes tens of thousands of associates. The fellows make appear so it's like, wait, so wait, so the current and retired members uh, from NATO and the Ukraine military. Yeah. I think there's. A, I, I've seen that there's like a whole uh, Ger, uh, Georgian Legion contingent of it that tend to be like the most aggressive. <laughs> um, um, you know, so I mean, I think you know one of the things that they'll do if anybody wonders about the provenance of this trolling campaign is they'll say, oh, look, these these uh, idiots are just conspiracy theorists. They think everything is a CIA. And Jesus Christ, you got to read think, this. Yeah. They think that nobody could actually have just genuine views you gotta read about Ukraine. I mean, you got to read this okay, read article. I mean, NAFO, which can be described as, quote, a Western civil society response to Russian campaigners, End of quote is a part of a larger quote battle for sovereignty of interpretation on shared online spaces. According to Politico, to delve into NAFO is to get a crash course on how online communities from the Islamic split to the far right, blah 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 blah. So this is just like a hagiographic. Hey, hey, like, I mean, this is this is like, uh, uh, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, this is like you know, Wikipedia pages propaganda. I mean, this is obviously a government. Uh, Thing, right, some kind of maybe maybe a partnership between you know Ukraine and the U.S. or just the US. well, that's the thing. You know, I'm not I'm not actually 100 percent sure if it started as a government thing. Um, I think uh, obviously at least some percentage of it has to be organic, or at least that's what I sort of infer. Um, but it's sort of the you know it's one of these things that can just snowball that maybe starts with a germ of some authentic sentiment, meaning you know they. Pro-Ukraine people on on Twitter think they have to get more serious and coordinated about going after what they see to be propagators of Russian disinformation, yeah, right? But then, but you know, within a, a sh very short period of time, you know, like the defense, the Ukraine Defense Ministry was promoting it, like Adam Kinzinger was promoting it, uh, think tankers were joining it and promoting it. That guy from Bellingcat says he's going to be like doing a lecture series on. The triumphs of of NAFO, so you know it, it, it sort of, you know whatever the actual exact provenance of it, clearly it gets in, intertwined with um, sort of official entities to some extent, and you know even if even if there was no government backing at all, or like you you, know, you couldn't, or it was like proven that it was like one hundred percent authentic, they're still engaging in behavior that obviously Twitter would. Depend in two seconds if it were you know, a different Lithuanian political minister, context. Do you know the Lithuanian Minister of Foreign Affairs visited Ukraine wearing a NAFO shirt? Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> this is amazing. Wow. I had a, I had a, um, 
a guy, like one of the guys, like doing a uh, a countdown for my, you know, hu- return and humiliation to Twitter after you know slinking away because I was so ashamed about the success of the counteroffensive. Apparently, you know, uh, the you know the first th- the first tweet that I made after four days, um, you know, he had, he'd apparently been tracking, uh, you know, the length of time that I hadn't tweeted. And so he was saying, you know, after four days, you know, here I am back. And because I, you know, am too ashamed to mention the, the counteroffensive and I want to avoid the topic, here's the other thing I'm talking about. Of course, you know, within, you know, half hour, I, I was talking about the counteroffensive because people were demanding I do so. And okay, fair enough, I guess. Um, yeah. But we then, you know, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, we will in a second. And I didn't think anything of it. And it turns out that the guy is like, works in digital marketing for the government of Estonia. And he's like one of these NAFO people. And it's just, it's yeah. just very weird. Yeah, well, I mean, it is. I mean, that is, that's, that's your tax dollars at work. But I guess I have to give them, I have to give them credit because they've been successful in their trolling and that they seem to have achieved their objective of making Twitter noticeably less pleasant for for me anyway. So, you know, credit where credit is due. Okay. So yeah, what is your, um, so the the name of the call-in room is offended by the, offended by your counteroffensive. That's my clever, uh, wordplay for the day. Um, what is your what is your interpretation of the significance of the counteroffensive? I mean, it's, it's been established that yet the clearly territorial gains were made. Um, I see talk among some of the more, I'm like the Nash, the pro Russia nationalist bloggers and stu- and such, and like analysis analysts about how um, this means that. Putin and you know his click must get serious and either do a partial mobilization or a full mobilization or set aside the uh, the limitations that Russia had imposed on itself from the outset, like pursuant to it being a special military operation and not a war, um, where you know they were not going to be attacking civilian infrastructure or whatever. I'm not saying that Russia never has attacked civilian infrastructure prior to this month. I'm saying the, what the pro-Russian bloggers are saying is that, you know, the, um, the gloves have to now come off and essentially Russia has to escalate. So when I talk about the Ukraine counteroffensive as being an escalation, yeah. I get swarmed as somebody who's out of my mind, you know, even though it meets every definition of an escalation. People just can't distinguish like a normative judgment from a descriptive one. So it could be, I mean, escalation could be an escalation, but you could find it good, but it'd still be an escalation. Um, How much can Russia, you know, what how much can Russia really escalate? Because they can't, they could use nukes, obviously, but like they tried to, they knocked the power out of uh, Kharkiv, but my understanding is they, they put them back up. Um, so they don't have unlimited amount of missiles, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, and so you could knock stuff down. Uh, and the question is like, can you, you know, can you keep it up? I mean, it, I, you know, this was surprising. This was surprising. I, I don't know if anyone expected this. I mean, you were, you know, as you're watching, uh, you know, month after month, like these, um, these, this, these Russian offensives and they're very slow. It's like weeks and weeks, you know to gain, like, an inch on the map, you know, to gain, you know, a dozen miles or something. 
Um, and, you know, the map moves in the Russians' direction slowly and slowly. And you think that, like, okay, this is just the nature of the warfare. It's, it's hard. And, like, you know, everything's frozen since the, um, since the first weeks of the war. Um, but then, like, you know, Ukraine comes in and does something like this, right? Takes back a huge portion of the territory just, like, overnight, right? Like, in a few days. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's been a lot of analysts I've been listening to who said, who talked about this manpower thing that just Russia didn't have enough people. So, like, the, like, the Russian nationalists and the, um, and the Western think tankers, like, they agree on this point that Russia just does not have the manpower. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty credible that that's what's going on. (laughs) And so Ukraine has... Well, they don't have sufficient manpower deployed now. I mean, they could in theory, mobilize in, in additional theory, manpower. In theory, right? But the, the question is, like, are they... I mean, because Ukraine, Ukraine has a full mobilization. I mean, there's mandatory conscription. Yeah. Yeah, the Russian... The, 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 it's, the question is, is it politically too hard to do? Like, that's, that's the... Uh, uh, that's the that's the question, right? So, like, if they haven't done it now, like, I, I just, you know, they're going to have to do that. If they don't do that, um, they are, uh, yeah, I mean, Ukraine, I think, has every advantage. They have the manpower. Uh, they have the technology. They have the intelligence. I mean, the U.S. satellites and, and the, and the uh, you know, the intelligence sharing with uh, the Western powers. Um, and, you know, it was like an open question whether they could actually. Which is probably it. more extensive than even we're being told right now. Well, right? Even the pattern, the, has, been, the pattern has been that only after the fact are, do we get, you know, bits and pieces of information showing that the so-called intelligence sharing arrangement is more robust than had been let on. Well, I mean, what's reported in the paper is pretty robust. I mean, they're basically saying the UK and the US are training them and the gyms and they're telling them where to kill. I don't know how it can be more extensive than, like, what's in the, what's in the newspapers. I mean, it's pretty... Uh, like it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty extreme. It's like it's, you know. It's like, oh, yeah. Say you know, we, we, we already. Uh, it's already been reported now for months, and it was actually just uh, again sort of verified a few weeks ago that there are UK special forces in Ukraine physically. Uh, yeah, yeah. Have yeah, been like since at least more... April. So, I mean, let's say hypothetically there are also American special forces in Ukraine, um, which is actually what that Republican congressman who I talked to at the America First Summit thing um, was advocating for because he said that, you know, we should have parity with the British, essentially, in uh, having an actual on-the-ground force. Um, so let's say, in theory, there, there is an on-the-ground force. I mean, would you be... I don't know that there is or isn't, so, right, I'm not making a factual assertion here, but would you be shocked if, you know, we only learn that that existed, like, in two months or something? No, of course not. I mean, the, the, I mean, if the UK look, if the UK has, I think the intelligence sharing, the fact that you're giving them satellite coordinates, to handle, I don't, I don't think you can get like if they're physically on the ground, is that like a much bigger deal? So I think that's pretty much, you know, the maximum kind of help you would expect, right? I mean, like if they're well, it does, on the it, ground, like, it, it, matter, it, would, you, it would matter politically. I mean, boots on the ground is sort of like what people cite as the red line of sorts that sort of that demarcates how invested the u.s is in the intervention yeah and you know i guess if the u.s was like paying for these mercenaries or uh you know stuff like that you know so like i mean here's the new york times right ukrainian officials drew on u.s intelligence to find counterfeit right so the u.s intelligence they're giving them they're planning strategy with them right they're telling them what to do they're giving them the intelligence so um 
uh, yeah, this is, um, you know, this is pretty much, you know, I, like, wh- you know, what else, what more could there be? Maybe, you know, yeah, they have troops on the ground. Okay, like, that's politically different, but it, it doesn't change the uh, wider story. Uh, so, you know, the larger, I mean, the larger point is, like, yeah, Ukraine has all these advantages. And, like, the question was, can they actually do offensive operations, which was not proven, right? That's, like, a complicated endeavor. They can, um, so they have the manpower, they have unlimited resources, they have the technology, they have the intelligence, um, so it seems, I mean, it seems, it seems bleak for Russia, if, you know, something doesn't change. Yeah. Um, now, now, I, I don't, don't know. Well, 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 like, you know, one reason why I couldn't, they, uh, you know, the trolls couldn't nail me, like, I guess they were able to nail you in that you did seem to make a statement, you know, before the war that's now been disproven in that yeah. there was like, you know, you, Ukraine has demonstrated that it can regain territory. Uh, you know, one reason that I hadn't ever really said anything like that is, um, you know, not not because on principle I think it's wrong to make, you know, forward-looking statements about tactical developments. It's just that I genuinely thought that I was at such an information deficit and there was so much unknowability about these different tactical factors that, you know, my, the only real defensible take I could have on that score was just like agnosticism, um, which is sort of why it annoyed me at the beginning. And you, you've talked about this where like the, 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 the metric by which the status of the Russian invasion was being judged was against what was quote expected that Russia was going to be able to do, and I don't know, they're going to be attempt to seize Kiev in four days or whatever. Okay, maybe certain people expected that. Why am I supposed to care? I mean, or why is that like the objective standard by which to judge military developments? Maybe if they had, if the people who had been talking about these expectations had adopted what I would think is the more defensible sort of epistemic uh, approach is that they would have also been more agnostic. So, I mean, when I, when this happened, I'm not, I wasn't particularly surprised. I always sort of allowed for developments like this to occur, at least in sort of how my, I mentally process it. But also on top of that, and this gets to why my focus this whole time has tended to be on the U.S. policy role, as opposed to like thinking I can somehow get into the nitty gritty of, you know, the Ukraine military's war planning or whatever, um, is because it, it really doesn't surprise me that the world's most powerful military, the U.S., in making such a huge commitment to winning a war like this, is able to achieve some measure of success in doing so. I mean, that's if any if you had to if you ask me, do I expect that they would achieve success or failure? I would tend more toward expecting success, at least tactically, like meaning they would be able to achieve their tactical goals. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not, uh, I, 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 w- I wouldn't have been surprised in that respect. If anything, I would yeah. have been more, a bit more well, surprised about the, about the opposite. Yeah, we talked about the Kiev thing. I mean, I think just, I mean, I think it was a failure for the Russians. I mean, from I think from their own perspective, I think it would be, you have to, you don't have to make a lot of assumptions. To okay, maybe it was a failure, but like, why would, it, you shouldn't, it shouldn't be judged a failure in relation to what so-called expectations were of pundits. 
you know, I mean, the pundits, I mean, but if it was the Russian expectations and it was the U.S. expectations, what if it was that? I mean, that then, and you know, there is a momentum thing. There is like a psychology to war, right? So like, it doesn't matter for the actual course of the war if like the Russians and the Ukrainians, you know, how they do relative to expectations, right? So it's like a very, you know, important thing just in its own right. Um I don't know. It's just the, it's too it's too intangible and like manipulatable for yeah, me but it's to I mean, accept stuff, as a like, as a real thing. Yeah, but these psychological things, I mean, they're 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 important. But more generally, I think you're I think you're right. I think I've probably made too many predictions, and you know, you're probably right to be more skeptical. And I, I guess when I'm making predictions now, I should probably say I'm not very confident uh, in it at all. I saw some guy on Twitter saying, "Oh, Russia has you know Ukraine is burning through all the artillery. Russia has." more artillery and you know they're getting more from north korea and i was just thinking to myself you know i don't know like i'm not an artillery expert um on the <laughs> russian industry but you know the idea that russia cannot produce um the u.s and europe just seems doubtful to me and uh you know if you're bragging about like getting extra from north korea i probably i think that that's probably a bad side but like i don't know like maybe 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 somehow there's i know nothing about artillery production right so like maybe russia has the secret and russia and north korea are, cannot produce everybody i have no idea um it seems unlikely just based on what i know about the world but yeah this is uh you know this thing is this thing is uh this thing is unpredictable um and, yeah know, should, i mean i would i would i uh when i saw the north korea thing i cautioned against taking it at face value. I mean, it may be true, uh, but it, w- it came from an anonymous leak from the U.S. intelligence services, as usual, to the New York Times or what- whatever. And, you know, they they admitted, meaning they, uh, Kendallanian of NBC News, admitted that... Yeah, that's true. You know, they the, these, these leaks had been done earlier in the war to preempt China from sending material to Russia, but the leaks initially were framed as, as though China had already been in the process of sending arms to, to Russia for use in Ukraine, and it was, which was totally false. And it was like literal information warfare. So I don't know. Could it be information warfare that Russia is so desperate that it has to go to North Korea? It could be. It could also be that they actually are getting artillery from North Korea. I don't know. I just think, again... Agno- a little bit more agnosticism would be good, um, but let's say let's say that Russia actually is dealing with major deficits in material, right? And they have to take more and more desperate measures to fulfill their stockpiles, fill their stockpiles, or what have you. I mean, that seems to me like another potential avenue toward escalation. And I know you know people get people roll their eyes online anyway just at the term escalation because it seems like it's overused, or people are uh, seem to be alarmist if they're talking about it too much um but you know the more uh, the more back into a corner you would think that russia perceives itself to being uh, perceives itself as being um and then the more drastic measures they may want to take if their goals their relatively maximalist goals in Ukraine still hold, or you know, additionally, if maybe their goals have actually become more maximalist. I mean, that's what Mearsheimer said, right? I mean, he actually says that over the course of the war, Russia has broadened its objectives much further than what the initial objectives were. So, you know, if if the goals are still sort of on the max maximalist end of that spectrum. And they now have to 
be a bit more, you know, panicked about resupply, you know, that could change the decision-making calculus to some extent where you, they could escalate. I mean, do you think you actually think that Russia just doesn't have the ability to meaningfully escalate at this point short of nuclear weapons or because I mean, yeah, they I'm did, not, they did not, escalate right when they, when they bombed the power grid. Yeah. I mean, but I, I don't, I mean, I don't know because the power came back within a few days. I mean, did you see that uh, from my, my understanding is, well, yeah. the power came back. but they could so keep bombing not, it. Well, but they, but they can't, they have a, they have a, uh, well, my understanding is they've been using, they were using the, um, uh, they're basically using the dumber bombs because they have they don't have unlimited supply of these specific bombs, right? So like, there's all these cities you could knock off the power grid a bunch of times, and you know they have a problem with the technology. I don't know. I'm not an expert in this stuff, but you know, it just it, it, there there does seem to be a limited supply of this stuff. Yeah, and, and okay. So another another <laughs> so another way it's already escalated given the potential deficit of supplies of Russia is so let's say it seems like pretty much proven that they've gone to Iran for drones, and now the drones have been used in battle. Let's say they're also going to North Korea. Let's say they're even maybe potentially trying to work out some sort of arrangement with China for arms sharing, because the number three ranking official in the, in the uh, Chinese Communist Party was in Moscow last week, giving the most over-endorsement yet of the Russian sort of war aims. So that's a possibility that Russia, that China might actually be, I don't know, brought into this sort of armament uh, you know, arrangement. I mean, that's also unto itself an escalation. It's escalating the range of actors geopolitically who are now invested in the conflict. It's, it's escalating the conflict well, I mean, from, like away from like a regional conflict into yeah. an increasingly internationalized one. Well, I don't think I don't think Iran or North Korea. I mean, they could do little some help on the margins, but I don't think Iran or North Korea is going to make a big difference. Now, China could potentially supply. It could be like you know, like the U.S. is for Ukraine. China could be for for Russia. Um, but I think Russia would like that from the start. I mean, but does it? I don't know if China. You know, you said that uh, the the Chinese official was in was saying these things, but then there was this uh, Xi Jinping was also talking that apparently didn't. You know, it didn't sound that hawkish on, on this thing. It didn't sound that pro-Russia. We don't know. I mean, you, you know, the U.S. intelligence says China's not supporting them. Uh, but I don't think that, and maybe, you know, we have no idea, really. I mean, this is just, you know, anonymous leaks. Um, but I think Russia would want that no matter what, right? I mean, I, I you know, I, but it's not up to them. It's about whether China wants to do it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't rule out Iran. I mean, I don't, I, I don't see any indication that Iran is going to make like a full-fledged commitment militarily to the war or anything. But, you know, Iran actually does spend more on its military than uh, Israel, uh, you know, than Turkey even, which, you know, and Turkey has the... Turkey's, look, the, second largest, look, the, Turkey's just... the Turkey's the second largest military in NATO. So, I mean, maybe it wouldn't... Maybe Iran wouldn't have a decisive impact. But, you know, it's not like... North Montana and uh, North Macedonia or something. It's better than North Macedonia. I mean, but yeah, I mean, you're just comparing it to Turkey compared to all of the West in America, you know, all of the Western countries. It's, it's not even, yeah, in the same category. Yeah. So I guess without making a hard prediction, like what, what do you sense is the current trajectory in light of the yeah. counteroffensive? 
So, I mean, just, uh, you know, on the, uh, you know, just with the disclaimer that I'm just guessing and, you know, I could be wrong like I've been wrong before. Um, I think it's probably a stalemate. I like that you've been humbled into giving disclaimers. <laughs> I've been humbled into giving disclaimers. They forgot to me. Uh, I will, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably, uh, well, they'll, they'll like this now because now I, you know, they get mad. Like, even if you just make a prediction, they get mad. They're so stupid. So maybe they'll like me now because I'm predicting uh, something that they'll like, which they which are too stupid to like tell the difference between, like, you know, just predicting something and, and wanting it to happen. Um, I think it's yeah, probably a which is ironic because I actually, I actually don't make – I make a point not to make predictions on principle because I think it's sort of dumb punditry. And I know we've talked about our differing sort of philosophies on that. But it doesn't – do me any good because I still assume that I'm constantly making these wild predictions that are proven wrong. So maybe I should just start making predictions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I'd say probably a stalemate. And if it moves, it's going to move in the Ukraine's direction. Um, I think. I think there's a bigger chance of nuclear weapons than people think because that's like the one thing they certainly can escalate. And if like Russia doesn't see like a lot of other options, um, you know, that's like. You know, it's it's not it's not completely outside the realm of possibility that they say, okay, this is like you know, this is the gamble we take to do it. Especially if Ukraine starts getting really successful, like Ukraine can actually threaten Russian territory. I mean, you know, they're getting close. You know, there was a I don't know if this was confirmed, but there were reports of border clashes, like that Ukraine had entered Russia. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah, Bel- Be- uh, Belgorod. I mean, it's it's sort of weird because Belgorod, you know, which is on the near the border of. Ukraine in, at the at the north, like, but it's inside territorial Russia. You know, it's like it's a small to mid sized city, but it's like a military logistics hub for Russia. I mean, there have been a lot of incidents over the past couple months, and you know, maybe I was a bit off in maybe sort of assuming that you know proven t- attacks by Ukraine within territorial Russia or Crimea. Um, and such, which have happened, uh, in, in kind of suspecting that, that would draw more of a response. Uh, maybe it hasn't yet. Maybe um, maybe it will at some point. I don't know. Yeah, but, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. We are assuming, yeah, they are able to. That's the thing. I mean, they tried escalating. They knock out the power. Okay, it's gone for a few days. Uh, it comes back. They did flood, uh, what's that city called? Kivi Rogue. So they destroyed some dam. Right. Um, there was flooding. So maybe they, maybe they actually, like, destroy a city. I don't know. Like, right. But it's like, like Ukraine is like, you know, it's it's it, like it's in terrible shape, right? Like you destroyed their economy, you you cause a lot of people to flee, uh, you you made their living standards poor. All of that is true, and maybe you could do a little more of that. Um, but it's like, you know, I don't know. Like you don't have other li- like nukes are different, a different matter. Uh, but like, I don't know. Like I I think they're pretty desperate. I think they 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 want to win, and so like I don't think it's like. Uh, you know, there's a lot that they could be doing that they're holding back. Maybe there is, but like, I don't know. Like, I, I again, that's a good reason not to make prediction because I really, I just don't know the, I don't know the details here of like what they can do. Yeah, and and have you are you have you discerned any, you know, reduction in you know the scope of Russia's military objectives? Because if anything, they seem to at least be stable, or maybe even increasing or becoming more maximalist. So if we have a dynamic now where the goals are just as maximalist as, as they've ever been or maybe getting even more maximalist and Russia's getting more desperate, like isn't that the recipe that people feared, like including Mearsheimer and others that could actually lead to some sort of nuclear incident? I don't know about their... 
Like Russia winning the war, Russia winning the war by conventional means was never really cited as the potentiality whereby they would be using nuclear weapons. It was more if they were losing. Yeah, if they're on the def- yeah, I think that's that's the problem. That's why you worry about the U.S. arming Ukraine. That's why you know people want morally they want Ukraine to win. But that's actually, you know, if you if you're worried about preventing Armageddon, that Armageddon, that's the most that's the most dangerous uh, scenario, right? Um, and so, you know, yeah, it's um, that's that's the difficulty, and I think people don't really like to people don't really like to think about that. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's do the callers. Our favorite part of the evening, as always. Um, waiting for caller. Oh, Richard, it shows you as the host, so I guess you have oh, to... Oh, yeah, that's right, I started it. Okay, let me see, let me get uh, this Eric guy. Oh, he disappeared. Okay, let's oh, go, Andrew. He'll, pro- he'll probably be back. Yeah. Invite to speak or make next caller? Which one should I push? Uh, it's, just the red, it's just the red button there at the red button. way to the left. Yeah, invite to speak, yeah. Invite to speaker. No, 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 not invite to speak, sorry. Take next caller, next caller. No, too late, I gave him, I, made, I invited him to speak. Mm. Oh, he's uh, he's already trying to speak. Make next caller, okay? Yeah, you invited. Okay, now Andrew's a speaker. That's fine. Just make next okay. caller, Andrew. Congratulations, oh, well, you're a speaker, uh, so you could just unmute. <laughs> I, I see myself in both spots. Are you hearing me <laughs> twice, or am I okay? You're good. Just Can go ahead. Your one. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, you you win. Yeah. You um, want call it? Yeah. <laughs> the offensive in Kharkiv is definitely a big loss, but I wouldn't see. The entire war is catastrophically as is uh, in such a catastrophe for Russia's position as Richard does right now, just because from what I'm hearing, it's not just the number of troops, but the quality, you know, maybe that's not true, but I would really think that if he saw anything similar happen in Zaporozhye or, or the Donbass, then you would definitely start to panic more if <laughs> I, I would think if you're on the russian side let me ask you this Ru- russian. if russians okay so they like they had these poor troops they 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 put all this effort into gaining this territory they they couldn't defend it and they ran away like okay if it's not a big loss but like what does it say about like russia's competence in like prosecuting this war that they spend months and months like grinding away getting this land and then can't even defend it and then they're just you know it's all taken over and in, in a in like a day i think it says it at least whoever's responsible for that part of the war is certainly incompetent. And it yeah. probably goes to speak about the Russian military structure itself and the utility of BTGs and these 600 person units compared to larger, like brigade thousand person. I don't know, you know, that that's all much more in the weeds, but I don't know. I, I, I do think that uh, Russia is not just going to allow itself to lose in Ukraine one way or another, which when it comes to nukes, you know, we nuked Japan because we didn't want to do a full invasion. And, you know, or at least ostensibly, that's the kind of, like, established narrative, right, is that we didn't want to sacrifice all the men, and so we used the nukes. And yeah. is Japan... We saved lives. Lives were saved because right, yeah. nukes were dropped. Lives were saved, right? And so, and that was Japan, that an existential threat at that moment, really? If Russia sees this, and not just Putin, but Russia, if they see Ukraine and what's going on on the border, and they're being by a NATO army, there's no, there's no ambiguity. It's Ukraine armed and staffed essentially by NATO, being fought by Ukrainians who are essentially in limitless supply. 
So, and this is on their border, of course. So if they see this as an existential threat, this idea of tactical nukes being used, I really don't think is that hyperbolic. Um, maybe not now, uh, but no, I see like it. As, I, I see it as yeah. I see a very good chance. I mean, that, that's what I'm afraid of because I, I do think the situation for Russia is bad. I mean, I do think that um, you know that's the thing that could they could at least convince themselves it could it could change things. So yeah, I mean, well, what's the cost benefit here, right? It's like and like you know you think like maybe they want to mobilize and maybe they're thinking that and you know I think that probably like public opinion is easy to easier to nuke somebody than it is to you know have a conscription. Well, so what would the U.S. response be? Are we going to nuke Russia? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, honestly, I don't, I don't, yeah, think, I don't so. think so either. But it would be um, yeah, I don't know. Like, what would the U.S. do? They're you know they can't. You know, I think they would double their, you know, double, triple their effort to Ukraine. They were probably just like, you know, whatever they're giving now, give it 10 times more, 10 times more. Um, and then I guess Russia could nuke them again. I mean, this is just terrible. It's, 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 terrible. it's getting like, so out of control. And everyone thought it, it was just some, you know, there's still, I mean, think about this right now. Just I actually back up and think that there's thousands of not paid, but just do this for their own pleasure shit posters behind dog profile pictures that treat this whole thing as a meme. You know, that's what's driving this. That's the energy behind the Ukraine war in the West, the pe- calling people orcs and whatnot. So, that, I mean, of course it's going to keep getting out of control. But uh, one thing... Wait, so, like so hold, hold on, just before you move on to your next point, I'm just sort of curious, and I know maybe this is violating my own stricture against uh, predictions, but, you know, if you had to assign a numerical value to the likelihood of... A nuclear incident at this point versus like two months ago. This, you know, what, what would it be now versus two months ago? Like, how much would it have gone up? If, if that's if a good has. question, I'm not equipped to answer that. But from a personal, you know, just like a surmise on your like part, like one yeah. to two percent max before, and now like ten to fifteen percent. Yeah, maybe. That's see that I mean that seems that, plausible to me. Not, and if we're at and if. if yeah. It seems plausible to me. And if we're at fifteen percent likelihood, I mean, that is by far, by like orders of magnitude, the likeliest that a nuclear event has been, maybe since nineteen forty-five. Yeah, Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe. Yeah, at least you know since I, since you know uh, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know. Scott I mean, Ritter, for what it's worth, thinks that the '80s were worse. I don't know if he still thinks that, but I heard him say that recently. But who knows? I mean, if it gets worse for Russia, I don't think that's the case that at all. The '80s, yeah, went, yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, I agree. It's much higher than people think. I mean, that's you know, fifteen maybe. It doesn't. It, it doesn't seem that fifteen twenty. It's much higher than people think because people refuse. I mean, including because exactly. of that, you know, to the to the accept uh, to their credit, like I said, the trolls are effective, um, and like it or not, people get a lot of their information on the war from social media. I'm not trying to assign outsized importance to Twitter in particular, but you know, it has some inf- impact. And there's the they, they they vigorously enforce this taboo against even get applying like escalatory ladder frameworks of analysis to this conflict that would have just been conventional wisdom in the past. And in fact, we're sort of most, you know, robustly theorized by wings of the U.S. military itself. Yeah, here's something I wonder. Now you can't even talk about it because that means you're under, you're like, 
what know, is this what is Ukraine What is these people's theory about why Putin wouldn't use nukes, right? They think Putin is evil, right? They think he's the worst man in the world. They think he doesn't <laughs> care about human life. Like, what's their theory of why? New Hitler. That's a fantastic yeah. question. Well, what if any of these people are serious? I mean, if I had to predict, they would probably say he can't do it. He's he can't do that without you know some kind of severe repercussion, whether it's politically or. Well, then there I, must I be. Yeah, there they, must they, be something. They live in a state of delusion. If you make it a parallel to the economic crisis, you know, when 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 the thought of the downside in in like in like the mortgage-backed securities or something is so cat- catastrophic that people can't even think about it, it makes it more likely that it will happen. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, that, that's actually a good way to put it. I mean, maybe I'll re- try to remember to do that and in rebuttal to my next uh, troll in- interlocutor. But, yeah, I mean, so they, every two seconds somebody brings up the uh, 1938 analogy to the current situation. So we're supposed to look at the Ukraine conflict invariably through the prism of World War II. Putin is expressly likened to Hitler, not just then that like he is personally as evil as Hitler, but he has these grand territorial designs on the order of what Hitler had when he first invaded Poland, and Putin needs to be stopped now because like Hitler... He'll go to more and more countries. I mean, that's been the talking point from the beginning, and that still gets brought up. Um, he's committing genocide. He supposedly uh, is rounding up, you know, children and sending them to work camps or something. I don't know if maybe they allege that the ch- children are being brought into Russia to go to work camps, but, you know, something of that order. Um, and yet... We're supposed to have this, you know, implacable uh, confidence that he's being successfully deterred from using nuclear weapons. Like, it doesn't comport. Um, I mean, I, I don't really think it does, but especially considering what, what we think of ourselves and that we used them on Japan, which again was not even an existential threat at the time, which if I know none of these people treat anything Russia says credibly, but is it that much of a stretch to think that a war on, uh, on a country's border with a nation they feel historically intertwined with is viewed as existential? I mean, espe- <laughs> you'd have to basically think they have no... Le- what, what legitimate claim could they have at that point, really? I mean, I mean Japan... <laughs> Japan was at by far its weakest point in years when the U.S. decided to drop two nuclear bombs. I mean, they, the Soviet Union had was had declared war, um, and you know the Soviet Union had been at war with Japan until uh, August of forty-five. So, of course, like the mythology around it, and and the mythology around World War Two more broadly which is sort of another subject unto itself that's sort of unfortunately relevant now. But yeah, it, it creates these like, uh, I don't know, Hollywood-style tropes that, you know, ostensibly derive from what happened in World War II but really aren't even about the reality of what happened but, but, but get invoked to like enforce these kind of orthodoxies today that, you know, 
prevent consideration of what I, you know, I think we're reasonable people here in this chat. And if we reasonably think that the likelihood of a nuclear incident in Ukraine has gone up from roughly one to two percent to roughly 10 to 15 percent in two months, then you'd hope that like ridiculous like Hollywood historical tropes from something that happened 80 years ago like wouldn't inhibit our ability to like rationally assess how that outcome today could be mitigated but you know unfortunately that's just not what the environment is yeah it's uh so yeah the theory is i mean that putin it's not that putin is a good guy obviously he's evil um and the theory could be that he might be deterred in some way um, so you have to wonder what's the deterrence, right? Like what is the, what could the U.S. do to, or the West could do to Russia that they're not doing right now, right? Cause they're, you know, the, the talk is now they're doing everything. They're maximum, basically maximally helping Ukraine. So if it's not because Putin's a good guy and not because he's deterred, unless they say the U.S. wants to use nukes too, which I don't think they want to say that, they don't really have a good theory as to like why Putin wouldn't, right? There has to be some kind. Now, I mean, I wonder what my theory. I've been thinking about now in terms of like what, why I think, why I'm trying to think like why do I only say it's ten or fifteen percent, right? Like if it's, uh, and I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. Like it's just like it's like a taboo. It's like something that people do not do, and like they don't think about doing it just because like no one ever does it. So it's it's just like it's sometimes taboos aren't rational. But I don't know if that's a good answer. I don't know if that's like a good reason to think there's like an 85% chance, you know, that Putin doesn't uh, use nukes in this war. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a really good point. I mean, what is exact? Because you know, there's supposed to be this, you know, strategic ambiguity, not just with Taiwan, but with what the precise nature of this deterrence effect is supposed to be or how it would actually work to supposedly deter Russia from committing an extreme action. So, like, what is the theory now that is supposed to be precluding Putin from using nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Is it that if he does use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, then the U.S. is going to bomb, drop a nuclear bomb on Moscow? Yeah, I mean, I, think, I, 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 don't, I don't. People, like I don't think people really suggest that overtly, but that could conceivably be a means of deterrence. And so, is that what people are actually thinking about? I mean, I, I again, I think that would be they would be very hesitant to admit as much, but like, I, I, I'm not really getting where the deterrence is coming from, if not by something on the order of that. And this sort of, and actually, more broadly, you know, something gets lost that gets lost, or something that really doesn't get noticed nearly as much, is that the U.S. slash NATO theory of deterrence around Russia has failed spectacularly because the point the point of expanding nato and the point of you know fortifying ukraine into this military outpost of the us and having these enhanced military ties and the drills and the exercises and the subsidization of the military and the training all that was supposed to be a deterrent i on think Russia. they would say if anything, it had the opposite effect. Yeah. So, like, who who are these geniuses now who have this flawless deterrence plan? I think they would if they'd say it was like, uh, you know, they, they didn't they didn't go far enough. So, like, Russia would have invaded Lithuania by now if they weren't in uh, NATO, but Ukraine was not in NATO. I mean, I think that's what they would say, right? Well, can I bring something? One last thing. Well, that's a counterfactual. What you can factually say is that Russia was not deterred by to yeah, from the, invading Ukraine. 
you could you know, well you could also say because they're not in NATO yet, or you could say that. I mean, you could. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but it's okay. But what, what, whatever deterrent strategy had been used up until this point, up until two thousand twenty-two, that didn't work, right? That did not deter work. Russia. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not really contested. That's just uh-huh. fact. Um, all right, do you want to go to uh, Phil uh, next, Andrew? You can just... stay up if you want. I mean, uh, am I, can you just tell me if I'm muted when I'm muting because it's flashing back and forth for me and I can't tell, so I'm just going to mute Yeah, yeah I've seen you muted. Yeah, you're good. Okay. Yeah, you're muted now. Okay. All right, Richard, uh, go um, to uh, Phil. Make an ex-caller. Phil, go ahead. Hello, Phil. You're up. Phil. Remember, remember to unmute in the bottom right corner if you've forgotten. There you go. Got it. Yeah. Uh, how you doing? Good. Good. How's it going? Fascinating conversation uh, with Andrew. Uh, At least we fascinate someone. So thank you. Glad we like God. You like it, Phil? No, you know what? It's, it's one of the few places you can go and actually have a conversation about this stuff. <laughs> Usually, it's uh, people uh, calling you names or something. Send a uh, send a fruit basket to the calling headquarters. Yeah, I believe that. Um, yeah, I, the interesting thing on this uh, the, on the counteroffensive. The counteroffensive, which uh, you know seems to have as much promotion as the origin on some of the first days of the war. I mean, it, we're getting uh, inundated with a lot of stuff. Uh, so coming back to you know what does it what does it mean? You know, I think I think it's very hard to uh, to say. I don't think very much at all. It means that they spent a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> on training about 10,000, 15,000 troops that were taken out of the action, probably their best troops. They meaning who? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, well, the, the U.S. Okay, <laughs> the right. It's a NATO operation, right? Uh, and there, are, yeah, and there, I, I, think there, there might, I think there are even more troops actually being tra- trained in Britain. There are. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so that's been the strategy to pull uh, they pulled troops out, uh, and then what you had was these uh, you know, entrenchments. Uh, you know, the, the date back to you know 2014 or whatever, uh, when this all kind of kicked off. Uh, that are very hard to crack. I mean, it's trying to you know trying to get into it. It was like the uh, Azov factory and everything. If you get people buried in a building, there's two things you can do. You can kind of just pummel it until it's. Uh, turn to ashes, uh, people surrender, uh, or you storm it, which will cost you tons and tons of lives, which coming back to your other conversation, which is why they used the nuke in, uh, uh, on Japan, because they had the experience of uh, Iwo Jima and any number of those islands where they took horrific casualties. I mean, it's murderous. Now, so I, I think, and we keep talking, what you keep hearing is uh the Russians are going to run out. Well, that's the strategy, right? The Russians are going to be impoverished. They're going to run out of money, and they're going to run out of equipment. And uh, thus far, that don't seem to be the case uh, because the, the West has to kind of match whatever they come up with. And uh, and I think the West is having a little bit of a hard time with that. <laughs> and it's getting lost that a fairly – a hefty rate. So, I mean, I would look at it as though the Russians had defeated one army. Now you've got a second one. <laughs> the question is, can, will they defeat that one? 
I, I think it's it's highly likely. I mean, with even with the troops that they've got. See, as you listen to the story being told, what I caught was that in no news report, analysis, tweet, news article, does it delve into who was actually defending the areas where they made the uh, advancement, right? I mean, who was defending it there? <laughs> How many Russians were there? Yeah, you know, I've read... Uh, again, I'm not in a position to really verify this, and you know, it's just these, um, you know, Substack and Twitter threads and stuff from uh, analysts. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I've, right. I've read that uh, apparently the less adept battle groups had been in the north, um, and maybe they had some role on, you know, their needing yeah. to retreat. So I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Or yeah. Well, I, I, say that they're not even... I think it's true that they have a very light supply of uh, people. So they're, you know, I mean, I don't think there's any disputing that. That's, or they are. That's or, or also and, what and people say was that, you know, they didn't even have heavily fortified defenses in the North to begin with. Right. That's right. Because remember the Kharkov area, they've been in and out of there twice. <laughs> right. <laughs> that means a lot of forest, a lot of nothing. Okay. It's the area around, uh, I guess, uh, well, the Ukrainians are back, so it's you, you, Kharkiv or whatever. Uh, but there's not much, there's not that much around there, uh, uh, other than, uh, you know, a lot of forest. They had some hard times with that. But my, but my point is that the calculation seems to be that the, the entire calculation on the West part is you're going to starve them. Sooner or later, they're going to run out of ammunition, their economy's going to crap. Uh, you know, we've uh, cut them off from most of the world. I mean, that, that's been the strategy. I would argue that that's been an incredible failure. <laughs> I mean, Russia's got more support internationally now than they had before, at the beginning of the war. So they're at, I mean, there are less people, more people are willing to deal with them. Everybody's buying their oil. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know if I would quite say that they have more support. Maybe they have intensified ties with certain important countries. I mean, even China alone well, would I'm probably be enough to. Yeah, the, uh, I'm, I'm going by the last vote of the UN. I, I think uh, it, it had dropped uh, substantially from the original. Oh, had it? Which uh, yes. which vote? Which vote was that? Uh, gosh, what, what the heck was the last thing they did? It was some condemnation or something that was being thrown up. Okay. I, I'm not sure, but I, I just remember that was the interesting part was the change in the vote totals. It was it originally had been like seventy to twenty or something. I, I'm sorry, yeah. I, I forget the numbers, but you could you can yeah, I'll take a look at look that. that one up. Uh, but that, but that did say change substantially. Uh, you know, and, uh, and and I think you do, which is not reported as much, have substantial uh, uh, discomfort in, in uh, Western Europe. <laughs> That's probably going to increase, uh, but anyway. Well, you know, point just, is, just, you just, measure, just quickly, quickly, Phil. Go. I mean, I think it would be, I think it would be a bit, you know, fa uh, fatuous to say that the a, a counteroffensive that did demonstrably result in Ukraine regaining a fairly substantial amount of territory, like couldn't quote mean anything, right? 
mean, it must mean something. I mean, it happened, right? I guess my the way I've been trying to th- the way I've been trying to, to think about it or frame it is that it doesn't seem to mean that any peaceable resolution is any closer. If anything, oh. it seems like it's now further as a result of the successful counteroffensive. Notwithstanding, everybody, you know, in this uh, state of euphoria, cheering how glorious this is. Well, now they now they've got to staff it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the question is, what's the measure of winning and losing? That that, that would be my primary point. Yeah. I think last time I spoke to you on this conversation, I said, look, measure capture, captures. Right? He who has the most captures is winning. <laughs> okay. How many Russians have you seen come get captured in this most recent offensive? Okay. Not very many. Like one or two, I think. I mean, there hasn't been a significant number of captures. I know they try to pump up the amount of equipment, but it's. But what they're not talking about is what happened in uh, in the Kherson uh, uh, area, where they yeah. got smacked badly. Now, if you lose by, and these are by Western estimates. I mean, you get the you know the Swiss guy that comes on and gives you a military evaluation or whatever. I mean, just going by their numbers, and, and you assume that those are the most favorable numbers that you can give. I mean, you're talking, you know, at least somewhere around eight to ten thousand. Well, yeah, this guy, picture. this guy, uh, Ilya Ponomarenko, who is right. the he, so-called not- Kiev independent defense reporter, who is yeah. said to be online, the front line somewhere, doing all this intrepid reporting, but seems to have. Plenty of time on his hands to uh, troll on Twitter uh, and troll right. me specifically. So I mean, I don't know how perilous of a situation he could be in if he has so much time for that. But that's sort of not, not really relevant. But he even he said, and it wasn't clear precisely what time frame he was tying this to because most of what he said is not particularly clear or coherent. It's just you know propaganda. I don't even really say that as a pejorative. He's Doing propaganda on behalf of his, you know, the sure. country that he's a uh, that is at war. So you you understand it. It happens in every war. Um, but he said he seemed to say, I think a couple of days ago, that just since the counteroffensive was supposedly launched, I don't know if that know if that means Herson is included or if it's just the Kharkiv front or whatever. But the the he cited a figure of ten thousand killed and. Killed in action since the counteroffensive, yeah. yeah, which is like huge. Well, yeah, and, and you can assume those are undercounted, and they're not telling you about all the ones before. I mean, that's that's not counting the, uh, the what he was doing two hundred a day, if you recall. You know, uh, that Zelensky said that. You know, so if you just take their numbers, here's the question: It's not whether the Russians will run out of missiles. I mean, they they do have an industry. <laughs> the question is, when does Ukraine run out of bodies? Yeah. I mean, they're already uh, they're already drafting, uh, uh, you know, sixty year olds, and uh, and women are now coming up, uh, uh, you know, for conscription unless you can buy your way out. I guess. Yeah, and the whole th- I mean, the whole thing about Ukraine, uh, Russia running out of missiles. I don't know. Again, I'm trying to be epistemically humble here, so maybe they are running out of missiles. I don't know, but what I do know is that. You know, interested parties who were these OSINT types or, you know, different kinds of sketchy analysts and pundits and whatever, they first started declaring 
in March that Russia was running out of missiles. Right. And they don't seem to have run out of missiles. I mean, maybe the supply is low or whatever, but I don't even know how these people are evaluating this. It's just like another one of these weird assumptions well, the, that gets sort of crystallized and everyone just repeats it, even though there's like nothing that empirically shows it. Yeah, I mean, if you if you went on uh, any, any uh, uh, you know, social media feed and everything, uh, the entire thing is, oh, the, the Russians are you know, running out of this. They're incompetent. They're stupid. They're dumb. And, uh, you know, I think I reacted to one of them. I finally was tempted and I generally try to avoid it. But someone tweeted about the yet another general, you know, <laughs> getting captured and eliminated. Russian yeah, the incompetence thing is funny, too, because, like, <laughs> if you have even the sparest knowledge of Afghanistan, the Afghanistan war that the U.S. Right. waged for 20 years, right, right, you probably would be familiar that there was a lot of incompetence associated with that <laughs> intervention. And yet it didn't mean that the U.S. Like, in totality had right. this diminished like, you know, overall like military supremacy right it was just yeah incompetence as as like would be expected pretty much anytime anytime the u.s does anything so i mean i don't know about you but i wouldn't i wouldn't have been surprised at all that russia which is far less powerful than the u.s in terms of just overall resources would also be incompetent in its execution in various fronts of this particular war i mean that to me, is like one of the least surprising, well, you yeah, know, uh, yeah, developments. What I'm reacting to is is using that as a form of analysis. You know, I, I, compared to who, you know, and I think you just made the point. You know, I mean, we want you want to talk about. I mean, this is not exactly the Tet Offensive that happened just the other day. You know, but you could go to uh, to any number of, of the U.S.'s engagements or uh, or Britain. I mean, all war has a horrible learning curve and you learn with pain, you know, and the question is, can you adapt? Uh, you know, I mean, whatever we thought going into Iraq, we had to change pretty quickly over a period of time, right? Just, you know, as a matter of practicality, how, how do you adapt to those uh, conditions? Let, let, let me, I'm going to leave you for a second, but let me make one well, of the Well, talk about the tent offensive. I just looked it up because my suspicion is confirmed. If that 10,000 killed figure is is accurate yeah then that's already more casualties than in the entirety of the tet offensive at least that was incurred by the u.s and um south vietnam oh well look i i believe that uh, the, the ukrainians are suffering horrific do you have horrific. a link to, do you have a link to this Ten thousand. the ukrainians say ten thousand were killed in the uh, yeah hold on it's um Ilya. Again, it's this guy Ilya. i'll, I'll pull it up okay yeah. Who apparently enjoys uh, or likes to congratulate his friends who have gone to Valhalla. <laughs> Which I yeah. Find, <laughs> yeah, weird, right? <laughs> but coming back to the earlier question that, that you, Ray were talking about, which was the, uh, uh, you know, what's the end game here? I mean, personally, I, I think Mearsheim has the, the origins and what brought us to this point quite accurately. <laughs> And the, the fact that he was saying it many, many years ago <laughs> just lends it more credibility in my mind. But anyway, uh, I, I mean, you think he's, he's got that. What I don't think the West has is it, it is a vision of how this ends. 
I mean, yeah. I think they're hoping for some kind of stalemate, you know. Uh, and it is going to end in a stalemate. Sooner or later, someone's going to say, okay, I've done enough, and this is where I'm at, you know. Uh, and no one can move me. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, I'm not sure there's clarity on, uh, on, on this side. Yeah, Richard, I just, uh, I just, uh, I just okay. DM'd you the, the tweet. Again, it's not totally clear to me what time span he's referring to with the 10,000 right, right. figure. Um, but anyway, yeah, you know, as, yeah. You know, as you're talking, Phil, one thing that, ju- that occurs to me is, again, total speculation. You know, so let me, let's do our obligatory disclaimers. But, you know, one thing that you could imagine, at least some Democrats, maybe the Biden administration or, you know, congressional leadership or whatever, f- finding suitable... Is that you know? Let's say the Republicans take the House, or or the Senate, or uh, both, in November, and uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not as doable anymore to get this next uh, Ukraine uh, war appropriations package passed. Um, well, the- because the Democrats themselves don't have an end game. At least that they'll articulate publicly, except these relatively maximalist goals. Right. One thing that they could end up settling for is being able to blame Republicans for their intransigence, and that's why the war commitment has to be wound down somewhat. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> and the other part, the other factor... I also, one more thing. Sorry, sorry, Phil. On this guy, uh, speaking of this guy, Il- uh, Ilya and the Ultimate War Aims, he actually said, I don't know how much stock to put in what this guy says. He seems like the chief sort of PR spokesperson for the Ukraine military who's like in this ostensibly yeah. media position, but who knows, maybe he just met BS's, I, I don't know. Uh, but what he, uh, he did, you know, he was trolling me as usual today. And because I, uh, I tweeted a, uh, an ex, a quote, uh, I transcribed a quote from Chomsky in one of his interviews a couple months ago, April actually, uh, where he said that, you know, although actually Chomsky on principle, supports some provision of what he calls defensive weaponry to Ukraine. I'm not sure how you even distinguish that from offensive anymore or whether there's any distinction to begin with. But he also always couples that when he talks about the subject uh, with an even more emphatic um, recommendation that the U.S. drop its opposition to any kind of diplomatic engagement because here he's here's what he says is the uh, only possible uh, outcome or outcomes quote there are some simple facts that aren't really controversial there are two ways for a war to end one way is for one side or the other to be basically destroyed and the russians are not going to be destroyed so that means one way is for ukraine to be destroyed the other way is some negotiated settlement if there's a third way no one's ever figured that out so chomsky said that even though he does support the provision of some what he calls limited weaponry to Ukraine. Nonetheless, he's clear-sighted enough to uh, acknowledge that the only, there are only two options, the destruction of, the, of Ukraine or a negotiated settlement. And so that gets to, back to our friend Ilya, or like, you know, my good friend. When he was trolling me today because I tweeted that quote, here's what he said. <coughs> let, quote, let me help you and your master strategist Chomsky with this Quote, third way no one has figured out. Russia eventually comes to the point it cannot continue the fighting the war due to lack of resources available or internal unrest or coup. 
see the military, see the history of humankind for more. So this is supposed to be obvious as an outcome resolving the war because one needs to only look at something called humankind for evidence of how obvious this is. But he's still saying that basically he's saying that Chomsky's wrong and it's not a matter of Ukraine being destroyed or a negotiated resolution. Pomodoroyko is basically also saying that Russia can be destroyed. That's the option. Right. Destroyed in that, you know, it's state capacity being destroyed, you know, so with, or with a with regime change. Remember Biden well, called for regime change in March, okay? So there the, the those are the that's that's that seems to be the goal. And if that's, that's what you think is a viable goal, then the counteroffensive is an advance toward that goal. Uh, now, I mean, I think everybody here agrees that the goal also seems like it would be combined with nuclear Armageddon. But that's if that's the goal, then you have every reason to share the counteroffensive. If you're you're th- if you are more uh, in agreement with Chomsky as to what the potential outcomes are, then I'm, I'm not sure exactly how you can be so thrilled with the counteroffensive because it means that the only option other than destruction that Chomsky cites, meaning a negotiated settlement, is even farther out of reach than ever. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what can you say? The other, the other crazy part is, I mean, that seems to be not only coming from him, I mean, that, that seems to be coming from the, uh, the neocon groupings and stuff and everything, and they, you know, they want to uh, beat, uh, you know, defeat Russia. Defeat them, you know. Uh, get C- Crimea back. Do you, do you really think that they're going to get Crimea back? I mean, that is that is the existential threat. <laughs> they can't be left with a situation where uh, Ukraine can uh, cut the water off to, uh, to Crimea again. I mean, it, it all gets uh, weird. But the point, but the other thing they keep talking about is, you know, we'll get rid of Putin. I mean, does anybody even thought about what would come after Putin? I mean. Some benevolent uh, neoliberal, you think? <laughs> I mean, is that what's going to happen? I mean, you would be destabilizing. Well, I'm sure it'd be a real, it'd be a, it'd be a really, be a really friendly and accommodating fellow. I'm sure. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Putin's whoever would replace Putin. I'm sure it would be a very friendly gentleman. Right. Right. Uh, no, it would be a t- an incredible destabilization. I mean, it would be, uh, I, I can't even begin to think about it. I mean, what happened? Georgia, uh, Armenia, I mean, you already got, they're already going at it. And also <laughs> remember, I mean, the last the time stands. Russia, the last time Russia was hugely destabilized, you know, like during Yeltsin, but, you know, after, after uh, the dissolution you know, of the Soviet Union, their state capacity was not destroyed but i mean the the military was at least comparatively to today in, in shambles so they now it, you would have a situation where russia still has what russia has a somewhat capable military apparatus um whatever their incompetence of late in ukraine uh and now you're gonna have you know existential destabilization in tandem with that rather than you know, the remnants of a collapsed state in uh, the 90s. It's, uh, it, I, I think that's the part that's frightening, and I think that comes back to the, the nuclear issue. Yeah. Because all of a sudden now you've got, who knows, with access to nukes. 
Yeah. All right, Phil. Uh, anyway, uh, Richard, let's go to uh, let's go to our uh, last caller here, Billy, who may or may not have a genuine fondness for uh, Joseph Stalin. We'll have to see. Well, he says you're not on the left if you don't defend Stalin. So he's got he's got a motto. Does he say All that? Right. Yes, look, uh, yeah. I hope he's sincere because I actually want to hear this. uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm sincere if if you you want to, if you have any questions about that, I'm happy to uh, give a robust defensive. uh, Could you just give like a nutshell version of your sentence, Stalin? Yeah. Case for Stalin. Um,. Yeah, or like so, why the left, or the, why you're not on the left, or why yeah, left can I be on the right? Or can I be on the right? And well, let him just let him just give, let him just give a nutshell version. Okay, of sure. <laughs> um, so you know, it goes back to Marxism. It goes back to the working class versus the capitalist class as the fundamental paradigm that informs history uh, and the status quo. Um, you had you know the first revolution where the working class took power of a state was in you know Russia that formed the Soviet Union. You had Lenin. Lenin died early. Stalin um, became the, you know, the in charge of the uh, Soviet Communist Party, and you saw the West um, go to Plan B when they tried to overthrow, um, when they tried to stop the Bolsheviks from coming to power in the Civil War. Twelve, twelve countries sent troops to stop the Bolsheviks. It failed. They went to Plan B. So, uh, 1933, Hitler was appointed. Chancellor, and um, they they saw that um, you know empowering fascism was going to be the way to defeat the workers' state. Uh, Hitler pretty much knew what his job was, and he didn't want to just be a pawn of the capitalists. So he pissed off the capitalists, secured his western flank first, and Stalin outplayed him, and he and he and he ended up getting the alliance he had always sought with the capitalists against um, against the fascists. Because the capitalists wanted to stay out of it and just let you know let let the two kill each other, Stalin outplayed him, um, and so he, he essentially you know he 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 defeated he defended the first workers' state from the capitalist and fascist invasion. He ended up you know forcing the capitalists into an alliance with him. They didn't really help. You know he really defeated Nazi Germany almost you know near single handedly. Um, the the Lind Lease didn't even kick in until after the Battle of Moscow, which was the first turning point. And then you had Stalingrad, which was um, the main turning point, or that was really the main turning point. And then you had Kursk, which was the coup de gras. And um, you know, in the meantime, he had already he had already ended famine. So the last famine was in 1933. That place was ridden with famine. So he ended he ended perpetual famine. He defeated the fascist invasion that was sponsored by the capitalists, and uh, you know he he did all that under considerable um, you know attacks both within and without by you know by plotters by by people that were opposing him and trying to. You know, destroy the. Thanks, but just one, one quick follow up because I actually do appreciate yeah. you making a uh, sincere case for this. It's interesting. It's good practice um, for me. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, why would someone on the left who agrees with you that class struggle is the fundamental dynamic of human relations and, you know, that's the paradigm that must be affirmed, um, why would that require personal reverence for Stalin. I know you said that he defended the first worker state, but the whole criticism of Stalin from uh, Trotsky um, 
right, was that he, uh, the Stalin had betray- Stalinism was a betrayal of the revolution. I mean, it was, the re- it was, it was that Stalin had perverted the Soviet state so that it actually was not an authentic worker state. And if, in fact, Stalin centralized control so that the initial Kremlin units, or, uh, sorry, not Kremlin, Soviet units, like the worker councils that were started just after the, in concert with the first revolution, um, those are essentially abolished. Um, So, you know, couldn't someone, couldn't you imagine someone making just as vehement an argument that if you do agree that class struggle is this fundamental dynamic that any leftist must affirm, then you should be virulently opposed to Stalin because he was a perversion of this first state. He perverted the potential of the first state to actually um, be organized around I mean, that dynamic. Yeah, that's that's the that's the criticism of the Western left, and and I don't I don't um, you know agree with it. Um, you know, again, you know, I believe in a, the van, vanguardism, uh, the the vanguard party. You know, um, when when you well, Trotsky are, wasn't a member. Trotsky wasn't a member of the Western left, but. Well, and he, mean, wrote, Tr- he wrote a whole Tr- book called The Revolution Betrayed, <laughs> which is yeah, about no, Stalinism I, I as this perversion. And, and, and the West has embraced Trotsky. Right. And, and all most communists, self-identified communists, are, are Trotskyists. And, and I totally reject them. And that's why I, 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 don't, I don't count mm-hmm. them as part of the left because, I mean, I, we have a fundamental disagreement on Stalin and on, on, on what the proper approach would have been. And again, vanguardism, you know, it's nice to, to, you know, think that, hey, if we had more democratic freedoms and less centralization, it would have been more socialist. But but you, you don't understand. So so Xi, uh, the, the, the current, you know, president in China, or uh, I'm not sure what his actual title is, but, you know, he said that nobody in history has made more correct decisions than Stalin. So to kind of understand the, the situation and the material conditions that Stalin found himself in like he did very good and you know he defeat he defeated the nazis he defended the worker state um if you were going to allow you know individual factory people to decide you know what they were going to make and 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 how much they were going to sell it for you know give them just just um real anarchy and um you know freedom in the in the in the in the industries you're not going to be building tanks you're not going to be preparing for the inevitable German onslaught, and you're going to be destroyed. And so Stalin didn't let that happen. Did that mean centralization? You have, um, of course. Yeah. Do you have a uh, any kind of citation or something that would help me look up that G quote? Um, you know, I've taken it for granted. I've seen it many places. Um, it's it's pretty. That's. Easy to I find. mean, <laughs> no offense, but that's not really good enough on the internet. Um, yeah. No. No. I mean, I don't. I don't. So I'm gonna actually okay. look it up too because I'm curious. But I mean, I assumed it was true. So yeah, it was basically yeah. Nobody, nobody has made as many right decisions as Stalin is essentially the quote that. Okay, I'll see. I'll see if I'll see if I can find it. But I guess that's neither here nor there. By the way, Xi is the is he is the president of China. But I think he's also president. Is it the general? Is I think he's like that in conjunction with being the general secretary of the party, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, um, did you have a a point uh, beyond uh, Stalinism you wanted to raise? Well. So, no, I, I agree. I mean, it sounds like we're in agreement on the whole Ukraine issue. Um, I look at, 
Don't tweet that because then, then I will uh, <laughs> I'll give fodder to my enemies. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, you know, I, I look at it like this. You know, you have an empire in decline. You have a Western capitalist dictatorship, an empire that is that it's is being threatened. It's being threatened by a rising China uh, Communist Party, Marxist Leninist Party. I totally support China. And then you have also a rising Russia. So this is the context within which you know these things are happening. I think what we're seeing is a uh, a, a Western imperialism. That so, so is- sorry, sorry to interrupt, but you so you view Xi then, or like the current. Communist Party kind of governance structure as like a, a rightful heir of Stalinism in advancing this worker-focused vision. Yeah, Mar- Marxist Lenin, Marxism, Leninism, sure. They're a okay. Marxist-Leninist party. That's the Communist Party of China. Um, so, and I think there's a lot of confusion. So, you, in other words, you view China in a positive light as like in a in a continuum with. You know, uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin. Absolutely, Billy. Okay. Can I ask uh, how you view Putin and Russia in this context? We're, we're so interviewing in you con- now, Billy, because we don't. We, no, we I don't, love it. We don't, we don't, get, I, we don't get idiosyncratic uh, perspectives. That's <laughs> I, I appreciate the questions. Um, so, you know, Russia. You know, okay. So what happened? It was you know the Soviet Union was dismantled. It didn't collapse. It wasn't didn't didn't fall by necessity. It was dismantled by an internal coup. Um, against the wishes of the vast majority when they did have, you know, a, a referendum on the issue. But um, Yeltsin, uh, uh, well, Gorbachev did that. And then Yeltsin was the first president of Russia. He was a drunk. He was a disgrace. He implemented, he allowed the West to implement their free market economic policies, which were a total disaster. And, you know, um, the life expectancy plummeted, drug abuse, prostitution, unemployment, poverty all skyrocketed. It was a disaster. Putin was in power. He got together with some nationalists. He told Yeltsin, uh, you need to get out of power. You're going to hand power to me and we'll let your family live. I, I think that's what happened. So essentially, that's what happened. Putin took power. Uh, finished Yeltsin's second term, which also okay, was no, uh, no, uh, no, I don't want to be rude, Billy, but I think most people are probably familiar with this history. I guess if just like as to like today, 2022, whatever gave rise to Putin's yeah you know, taking power, so, like what do you, how do you view it? So, so, so again, you know, he 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 won his elections. He became popular by saying, "I'm going to get the oligarchs under control, the Western-backed oligarchs that were created from the free market policies overnight." And get them under control. I'm going to stabilize the economy by nationalizing the oil and natural gas sectors, the crown jewels, the two crown jewels. He, he wrote his doctoral thesis on that economic issue. So right now he's very popular. He is definitely not a communist. He's, you know, he, he doesn't, doesn't embrace communism. But the well, he renounced, he renounced the Bolsheviks in his yeah, speech sure. on the, uh, launching the invasion. For sure. Um, and he, you know, he his his nearest political opposition is the communist party and recently he was speaking with the leader of the communist party of russia and he told he told him hey commun- you know socialism have we lost uh, billy bob yeah i think we lost i thought that might have been just me it looks like my internet somehow went out i lost maybe we've been uh <laughs> electro, maybe there's been an electromagnetic pulse attack. Can you hear me? Maybe Putin wasn't fond of what he was saying. <laughs> cut, cut the so, all right, Billy, so, you're back. So, so Putin, yeah. he, he governs a popular coalition, he, you know, a popular government 
but it includes it includes the Communist Party and other smaller parties. But the Communist Party is his biggest opposition, and um, and they definitely support what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, they see it as Western aggression. Um, well, if anything, so, it seems so like they, not not, not, there was a, there was a prominent communist uh, member of the uh, Duma. I don't, I don't can't recall his name right now, but he made a statement after this counteroffensive that seemed to indicate he was criticizing Putin for, you know, being too soft. Meaning he his point was that yeah. you know, Putin needs to intensify the uh, the special yeah, so-called no, special military. The, the Communist Party was pushing, uh, they were way more hardline than uh, Putin on, on this issue. Putin was reluctant to get involved, more, at least to a greater extent, than the Communist Party. Yeah. Uh, okay, and since we've been going on for a while now, I mean, do you have like a final point that you want yeah, to make or no, something well, that kind of encompasses I, why you called in? I was I was contextualizing um, what's going on, and you know, with the, a rising Russia, a rising China, and a declining, you know, Western imperialism that's seeing its 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 hegemony hegemony um, recede somewhat and being being displaced by China and displaced by Russia, especially in Europe. So 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 the Ukraine war it was a provocation, right? It was an obvious provocation. Is Western hegemony really being di- really being displaced in Europe? I mean, I guess that's a different point, but go ahead. Yeah, Nord Stream two, exactly. Nord Stream two for sure was gonna was gonna tight, tighten uh, Russia with Western Europe, and the U.S. Right. was gonna be out. And NATO's job has always been keep Russia out, keep Germany down, and keep U.S. in. So so and, Ru- and Trump tried to block that. Trump Trump of course tried to block that pipeline, but somehow that didn't factor into whether he was being perceived by his domestic opponents as a pawn of Russia. Anyway. Well, you know, I don't think they like Trump. The, 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 the Western establishment does not like Trump. He is not somebody that they can control. And Trump was in it for Trump and not the capitalist class. And so they went after him and they, you know, they didn't go after him fairly or with principle. I mean, they just made up anything that they could about him and, and, you know, link, leaked it to the media and told the media to, you know, to, to talk about Russiagate for two years and, and all that bullshit. Yeah. But... Uh, okay, final um, point then, so, if you don't mind, because we're at the two-hour yeah. mark. <laughs> Sorry. So, well, I mean, what do you guys think? Like, like how, how is this going to end up? See, I don't, I don't think this is going to end well for the Western imperialists. I think this is going to accelerate their decline. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to increase the frequency at which multipolarism becomes a reality. And I think it, the U.S. is misguided to try and have all these... All these, uh, you know, they're trying to have t- turn Taiwan into Ukraine. They want Taiwan to sacrifice itself like Ukraine is sacrificing itself to get China. But they're biting off more than they can chew. And I don't see it ending well for the West at all. All right. Yeah. And it's just going to. Got you it. You guys have any All right. Thanks, Billy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, this is sort of the phase where we're asked to just give our speculations, which is, you know, f- worthwhile to do, um, I guess. But, you know, I think, you know, so. You could imagine a situation where Russia is perceived to have, quote, lost this current war in Ukraine, or, you know, they at least didn't meet whatever objectives they set out strategically in Ukraine, just in terms of, like, the warfare. Um, and you could see that outcome being celebrated in the, quote, West as proof that Billy's thesis <laughs> is wrong. And it's a thesis that I would roughly share just in terms of the like, overall sort of ineluctable decline of Western hegemony. Uh, 
being, dis and being displaced by this so-called multipolarity structure. Um, but I think the people who are the tri triumphalist sort of Western commentators who would cite the ostensible Russian military failure in Ukraine as evidence that actually Western hegemony was not waning, they would be wrong in their triumphalism. I think that even if there is that military defeat or failure on Russia's part in Ukraine, that wouldn't somehow reverse what is otherwise a extremely multifaceted trend against the U.S. being a, you know, single-handedly, being able to single-handedly call the shots uh, internationally. Now, it might temper that decline somewhat or uh, maybe delay it somewhat or, you know, de-accelerate it. Um, but I think some of the movement that's been in place just as a function of the war beginning at all, irrespective of that outcome, it's already set into motion that the, that trend occurring. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, even apart from Ukraine, the, an ineluctable decline of a previously hegemonic power of, of such historical magnitude as the U.S. I mean, there's never been any world power that's ever even been close to rivaling the U.S. and its, its hegemony. Uh, I think that's going to, you know, it, it seems to me that one of the counter, that one of the inevitable effects of that is just kind of cross-cutting destabilization that it's going to have many different manifestations. This is changing the subject somewhat. I don't know we're going to wrap up. Sorry. But like, Whenever something would be crazy happening with Russiagate, right, over the course of the Trump presidency, and it would seem like it was almost inexplicable, like how is this totally farcical intelligence leak about how Don Jr., you know, got a Twitter DM from WikiLeaks, like how is this actually causing such a hysteria? You know, one thing that could, I would sort of repair to in my, uh, in my own mind, mentally, that sort of gave a certain... Um, coherence to the events would be to just like recognize that something as crazy as Russiagate, this like unprecedented maneuvering by the security state apparatus against the incumbent, the sitting president, that's sort of like the kind of thing that you would probably expect in terms of these inevitable destabilization side effects in the context of the U.S. basically just intellectually declining as a, as the chief hegemonic uh, power, so it kind of gave sort of a certain um, structure to, in my at least own, own mental processing of uh, events like that. So yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you in in that sense. Um, and but it's almost not even entirely contingent on the outcome uh, in Ukraine. Or at least that's sort of that's the preliminary thought that I would I would give. Uh, Richard, do you have a closing thought on that, and or Andrew? And then we'll wrap no, up. No, I, I, I was I, it's getting late. You, you zoned out. The Stalin, the Stalin guy, I, I couldn't follow along. I yeah, yeah, you zo Richard zones out. So, actually, that, no problem. <laughs> well, um, all right, Andrew, final thought? <laughs> yeah, real quick. The thing I actually called in, your conversation became so interesting, I didn't even bring it up. The I was going <laughs> to ask you both if you heard that the Inspector General of the Bundeswehr had... Uh, of the what? Advised... Inspector General of the Bundeswehr, I guess the German... Oh, okay, yeah, 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 got yeah, it. Yeah, he advised not to arm Ukraine further and said that Russia could open a second front somewhere else, actually use that as a reasoning. So it's not all sunshine and raises for the Western alliance and cohesion. Yeah. 
So yeah. that's my last Yeah, thought. all right. Yeah, I'll look that up. All right, thanks, everybody. Uh, Richard, you have to actually close out this call-in because for some reason you became the host. Well, I mean, you, because, uh, because I started the room. Oh, okay. It's whoever, it's whoever gets there first. Well, you watched. Well, you watched the coup, but it was a justified one. <laughs> All right, everyone. Good night. See All right, bye bye.